0: Mendocino County, this is Byline Mendocino, our bi monthly media roundtable talking with local journalists covering the news in Mendocino County and the region. Today, our roundtable, we're going to spend the whole hour with two very, uh, treasured journalists in our region. We're going to be talking with Adrian fernandez bauman editor of the Mendocino Voice, MendoVoice.com, and Lauren Schmidt, who is the news director at KMUD Garberville, our sister community station up in southern Humboldt, actually covering all of Humboldt County. And we're going to spend the whole hour talking about 2020, the news stories, what took us by surprise. Obviously, there's sort of, you know, there's sort of one or four major stories is the disaster year but also um what sort of what it was like covering the stories in 2020 and what it says about what's going to hit us in 2021 so welcome lauren and adrian thanks for joining me on byline mendocino this morning
1: Thanks
0: for having me. Uh, It's great to have you on. I love news people. (laughs) It's like the people who know what's going on in the community uh, and who follow things very, very closely. Um, So, i was hoping we could start um it's been a big year and we're going to spend the hour looking back at the year but it's also been a big news week and adrian you and mendo voice broke a story about the refrigerator malfunction at adventist hospital in ukiah and the subsequent mad scramble to administer 830 coronavirus vaccines before they expired um, and that you were on that right away in fact uh, we found out while we were online doing our local coronavirus report, and I went straight to Mendo Voice and, and found your reporting on it. Um, and Lauren, you also uh, broke a story this week reporting on vandalism at the local Humboldt County uh, Democratic headquarters in Eureka during the siege at, and the the DC Capitol building um, by Trump supporters. There was also local a local element to that. There was vandalism uh, at the Democratic headquarters in Eureka, and both of you spoke with Congressman Jared Huffman about the siege at the Capitol building. So, can we just start by talking about this week before we get to this eventful year? You want to start with you, Adrian? Sure.
1: Um, I can, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll talk about the vaccines. Um, <clears throat> so, I, su- I suppose for everybody that doesn't know, I, I give a thumbnail. Um, basically, on Monday, was that Monday? Monday morning.
0: <laughs> it was. It was Monday. Just Monday.
1: Um, wow. Okay. So it was Monday morning. Uh, I had to. I had to do a little mental reset. I was thought it was a couple weeks ago, uh, but I guess New Year's was just last week. It was Monday morning, and. Um, at about 11:35 a.m uh so so let me back up just a little bit so the vaccines um have been stored for mendocino county have been stored at the ukiah valley medical center the hospital there uh in ukiah um that hadn't been the original plan. Um, some weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago, the plan had been for the county to store some share of its vaccines in this extremely complicated, some would say, Byzantine rollout of a vaccine distribution. The the county would get some, and the hospital would get some, and Rite Aid got some. But um, what happened was that the county doesn't have a fr- freezer, doesn't have the freezer capacity to actually store these vaccines. Now, the vaccine that got distributed on a Monday was supposedly was the Moderna vaccine, Uh, which actually requires, it's colder than your kitchen freezer, but it's not the extreme temperatures that the Pfizer vaccine requires, which are sort of dry ice temperatures. Um, So as a result, all of the vaccine doses had been stored at and continue to be stored at the Ukiah Valley Medical Center. So at about 1135, um, it was realized that the freezer had broken. Now, what, what exact time the freezer broke, I don't know. I'm not sure that hospital staff know. I'm not sure anybody knows. I do know that that freezer is not in its usual place. Uh, there had been some um, concerns uh, expressed by the county, and as a result, that freezer is not actually, the freezer that broke was not in the room it usually is in. Um, and so the, there's an alarm system on those freezers because they hold such important, Valuable things, and according to sources, the alarm either didn't go off or wasn't heard. Again, there's some ambiguity around that. Might might have had to do with uh, where the where the box is being, where the freezer is being stored now. Uh, Anyways, by eleven thirty-five, they did realize that the freezer had been off for some time, and the vaccines were beginning to thaw. The the vaccines were going to go bad, and so that you know that mistake, that problem. had to be dealt with and at that point the the hospital uh embarked on hospital staff embarked on a strategy they gave some doses to the county to distribute um they drove i spoke with dr Bassant parker who per- personally drove some number of vaccines it's in my notes but i don't have them in front of me to the uh to a nursing home and administered vaccines and then some number went to remaining hospital staff that still needed vaccines although that was a small number of people because a lot of them had already been vaccinated and finally um, they, they asked hospital staff to just text and call friends and family um, or whoever they know uh, and try to get the vaccine out quickly now there's been some uh, frustration with that strategy some accusations that maybe that wasn't the most equitable uh, way to distribute the vaccine uh, even given the emergency even given that they had two hours uh, before they they had a two-hour window during which they could be absolutely certain the vaccine would be viable after that the vaccine probably would have been viable still but they wouldn't have uh, been able to say with 100 percent certainty that it was okay and so <clears throat> um there there's been some some discussion certainly a lot of chatter on social media that maybe this wasn't the best way to do it um and it certainly didn't follow the the phase one, phase A, phase one B, the the procedure that the state has laid out. Uh, Several hundred people in the Ukiah area got the vaccine. I personally know a couple of people that just have a friend who's a nurse and got in line.
0: It kind of uh, reminds me of the golden ticket from Charlie and the chocolate factory. It's like, you know, you're va- you, you, you won the lottery that day. If you knew somebody who knew somebody and you could get down there to get in line and get your, your vaccine. Um, and there was a lot of national coverage of the, of, of the sort of debacle here. Um, some of it was quite interested in (laughs) how quickly they were able to get the vaccine out as a potential example of how to really vaccinate the most people as as quickly as possible Um, a possible way forward i think the la times said but i'm really curious about um about your experience covering it how did you find out about it and uh how did you then i know afterwards you because you broke the story you were contacted by national press um when did you first get the tip
1: um Oh, man. I I got the tip from a source I have in the hospital um, probably around two, maybe a little later. I I got it uh, before they would stopped distributing the vaccine close enough for me to call my family and say, hey, try to go get a vaccine. Did
0: anyone get one?
1: (laughs) No, no, because because we're in Willits and they only gave out vaccines in the Ukiah area.
0: Right. And coincidentally, um, there was a jackknifed semi between Willits a- and Ukiah, so nobody could get through on the 101.
1: Well, yeah, now the the exact timing of that and the op- reopening of the freeway is actually, um, it's possible that they might have been able to get through, that they just weren't aware that the road had been cleared yet. Um, and so we, we got the tip, and it sounded crazy at first. <laughs> And I was like, "This this doesn't make any sense." since so I I called the the source, and and they said, "No, yeah, they're giving out just on a first come first serve basis." Step a line right up. The block. And there was there was a, a line snaking all the way through uh, the the front of the hospital. If you've ever been not to the emergency room, but the other at other entrance, it was uh, through there, um, and then down the block um, several hundred yards, and most of those people had to be turned away um so that the i got the tip and and then i immediately called you know hospital officials and tried to con- confirm it i was actually I had, coming back from a camping trip and so i was just my brother was driving and i was typing on i was sitting in the passenger seat just typing and, and making calls um and so i, I there was some there were some very patient uh, hospital officials and government officials as i continually lost reception while i was driving in and out of certain hills um but uh, later on, the the story did create a lot of national attention. I think I think there's been a series of of national of stories that become national, local stories that become national when there's some sort of screw up with the vaccines and and they're they're blown up um, as sort of emblematic of, of not being able to handle the vaccines. Now, I don't think that I don't think that it's a great thing that the vaccine, was that this that this problem happened but i do think that if you take if you take a process across an entire country you're going to have the occasional you know machinery breakdown so um that that does happen um they actually no nobody none of the national outlets wanted to talk to us they just wanted the photo that was running in our publication so our photographer jethro bowers got uh got picked up by the ap so that was nice
0: that oh yeah that is nice mendocino county getting out there um yeah it's uh it's interesting that first that there are so many people who want the vaccine locally that's kind of encouraging uh it's kind of like the good news that comes out of this whole incident, but also that, um, I think that it's possible to administer it that fast. Like if they just unleash the doses to us, we can get them out there quickly. I mean, uh, there's been a lot of reflection on, on what happened. Um, I know that the agencies are, I don't know what you call them, the city of Ukiah, the hospital, the county, uh, when they're talking to us, the, the press, and also to the, to the county board of supervisors, they're, they're, they're pleased with the way that they were able to handle the emergency that 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 they feel like they did a very effective job getting it out as fast as possible with of course the criticisms about well of course that's not equitable you just call your your friends and if you know someone who knows someone you get the vaccine but um in terms of the the ability to respond quickly they were pretty satisfied with that
1: i think yeah i, I think i i actually don't think that this demonstrates much because I think I think we all knew that our that you know doctors and nurses are pretty competent and that given the op given a volume of vaccine and given a procedure that is streamlined, they would be able to administer a lot of vaccines really quickly because it's a it's a simple operation. You know, nurses give hundreds of shots a day. It's not it's not a difficult thing. And so uh, it is the speed with which they were managed to distribute it is impressive, but I think also effectively uh, expected. And it, what it does demonstrate is that the bottleneck in distributing the vaccine has never been at the at the ground level of doctors and nurses. It's always been a question of sufficient doses, and then creating. I mean, at, le- at least here, at least in California. I mean, you do hear stories back east of like vax of shots going bad. And stuff like that, and long, really long lines, um, until the shots go bad. But at least here, that 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 wouldn't be the case. It, we have uh, it's just a question of getting enough doses. And of course, uh, confusion around this this phase one, phase two rollout. And I think a lot of the a lot of the confusion there is about because there's such a small number, they're having to, you know, they're counting angels on the head of a pin sort of thing, trying to figure out exactly who to give the vaccine to and what's the best way and what's what, who who has the, the most right and who has the most use to society. And it's and the kind most of a spooky need. conversation.
0: Yeah, it is. And I know that we're going to be talking more today during the county briefing about the ethics committee that they've set up and um, also the planning uh, through the planning and building department. There's a couple of very competent uh, county workers, uh, employees who are managing the organization of the clinics for vaccinating uh at this point we're still at the t- at the tiers the sort of limited tiers of emergency workers and essential workers but as soon as it kind of opens up to the larger public they're, they're setting up those plans now uh, let's turn from the local going national to the national going local lauren you uh published a story or you're, you're the Mud news director so you broadcast a story this this week about um During the siege on the Capitol uh, by racist Trump supporters in Washington, D.C., there was also a local uh, attack. There was vandalism at the local Humboldt County Democratic headquarters in Eureka. Can you tell us what what you were covering this week?
2: Yeah, actually, we um, aired that story last night on the news, as well as Congressman Huffman kind of giving a behind the scenes look of what unfolded on Capitol Hill as. He was one of the representatives that was put on lockdown. Uh, Definitely, there was a kind of very small, seemingly peaceful um, kind of solidarity rally at the courthouse. People calling for four more years of the Trump administration, um, despite you know President Trump losing the twenty twenty election. Unfortunately, kind of after the rally uh, ended, uh, one or. Few people went to the uh, local DNC headquarters and broke the windows, um, got access. I guess they also cut the cardboard head off of a Hillary Clinton figure uh, they had in there, and then um, also did some damage uh, in the restroom. But we don't we don't have to go there right now. Um, you know, I spoke with the the chair of the uh, Humboldt County DNC, uh, Dan Kelly. You know, he he was actually grateful. He goes, you know, this sucks, but it could have been worse. People are upset and we understand, you know, it's unacceptable. Um, At the same time, you know, the Republican headquarters in Eureka um, also experienced at at least twice um, similar vandalism, uh, especially during the, um, of course, Black Lives Matter ongoing movement, um, you know, shortly after the the murder of George Floyd. I know the the Republican headquarters was targeted. Um, So definitely, you know, reached out to them as well, uh, by phone and email, we didn't hear back. Um, but interestingly enough, you know, going to their social media page to kind of get a stance on where the the Eureka GOP is at. You know, they they're calling for four more years of President Trump. You know, the stop the steal, um, as well as you know, going onto their website. I think. Um, you know, we all have our different opinions and, and that's what makes our country great. Um, I was just had a little concern um, seeing their their website um, and some of the links to different, you know, news organizations. And I say that with quotations such as The Blaze, where if we were watching what was unfolding at the Capitol, you know, members of the media, we, we're glued to Twitter during breaking news because it's going to be on Twitter uh, most likely first. And following actually some of those, you know, what's now being referred to as domestic terrorists following some of those people's handles on Twitter, um, a lot of them being media contributors um, to this organization called The Blaze. And, you know, it was kind of disheartening to see that our local GOP is kind of buying into this rhetoric of stop the steal and, you know, everything that's unfolding. You know, The Blaze has Ties to QAnon beliefs, which are extremely dangerous. Um, now, I believe uh, five people in the Capitol um, have perished as a result of what happened, including one Capitol police officer. And you know, it's it ties on the local level and the national level. Um, you know, it's interesting uh, hearing Congressman Huffman, especially, talk about you know mistrust in the Capitol police, these law enforcement officials. That are supposed to be on the forefront of protecting our democracy, seeing footage of you know having them literally open up the gates to to some of these right wing mob. Uh, so um, luckily, on the local level, um, there wasn't really much violence other than what happened at the DNC and. You know, uh, folks are handling it pretty well, all things considered.
0: Were there any charges against anyone uh, for the vandalism at the Democratic headquarters in Eureka? How, what was law enforcement's response?
2: Uh, locally, uh, no. The DNC, they were joking they're pretty low-tech. They didn't have cameras. Um, they're going to, of course, look into that. The Re- Eureka police were uh, responded um, and were already on scene by the time the, the chairman did show up and you know, helped you to secure the property. Luckily, you know, none of the technology was damaged, just windows and and the restroom. And of course that Hillary Clinton figure.
0: Yeah. Well, and I, they sound, it sounds like their response is, um, they're trying to be kind of relaxed and jovial about it, but it does seem like if it's not dealt with, it could escalate. Um, I mean, like there's political speech and then there's, crime and violence and vandalism. So are they, do you think they'll press charges or do you think they're just going to sort of let it go? If
2: they they could find a suspect, you know, I, I, I doubt much more will come of it, but you know, we're seeing the rhetoric in, in for certain people in our country, trying to chalk this up to Antifa, um, which has kind of been this, this boogeyman of, of a movement You know, for for, uh, conservative people. And something I will say that was another kind of concerning aspect we saw this year was, you know, um, during local peaceful protests, um, some folks did kind of branch off and, you know, cause a little bit of a ruckus, a little bit of vandalism, graffiti. Um, However, you know, this is just our community members who are upset and angry, you know, just like uh, certain, you know, members of the GOP that are upset and angry. But um, our sheriff uh, went on the record and said that busloads of Antifa were here, and, uh, and and then ended up, you know, revoking that um, once more information uh, became available.
0: Busloads of Antifas came to Humboldt County, so so he had to roll that back. What was what did he say?
2: He he, he basically explained that he had uh, misinformation and. Um, you know, that was about
0: that. Interesting. So in Humboldt County, just like nationwide, we're seeing uh, between the, the sort of Trump supporters and the, the Democratic, local Democrats, we're seeing this polarization uh, similar to what's happening nationally, would you say?
2: You know, yes and no. Um, I think there's a desire amongst everyone to to be civil and respect each other. But there's just certain things both sides just will never agree on. And I think we do see a lot of civility. Um, Unfortunately, it's all coming to a head. I know uh, I was definitely naive to to welcome 2021 thinking it was going to be any different than 2020. You know, between the, the biggest things this year, right? The coronavirus, the August complex. Amongst other fires, especially you know in Mendocino County, um, Black Lives Matter, and then elections. And you know, as a reporter, and I'm sure you both feel the same. I was very excited for for January, and now I'm you know I'm like I thought we were gonna catch a break, and you know the news keeps happening.
0: Right, right. Well, you got the four kind of pillars of the apocalypse: the fire, the election, uh, the Black Lives Matter, George Floyd. Uh, protests and the pandemic, They're not pillars of the apocalypse, but the big stories that we grappled with all year as reporters. Um, and when the year started, I think we were expecting a big year in 2020. There was an upcoming presidential election. We were in the middle of the primaries, uh, both locally and nationally. And we were just, remember, all the way back to January of 2020, we were just getting through the impeachment hearings. Um, and we were um, also, I think, locally, we were sort of dealing with the implications and the shock of having experienced our power grid go dark for almost a week. I mean, that happened at the end of October, but um, it was at the end of October of, tw- of 2019. But still, you know, thinking about what that meant for us as a community and looking forward to it happening again with the PSPS or the public safety power shutoffs in um In the fall. I mean, to me, that's what I remember about the very beginning of of 2020. But it's hard to think back pre-pandemic, you know. Um, Did you guys, what did you expect from 2020? And do you, do you remember anything from before the shelter in place? Adrian? Oh, let no, me just, uh, let me it, just reintroduce. born in March. <laughs> I know. Let me, I, I was born in March. Let me just reintroduce you to, this is Byline Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales and we're having, uh, our local media roundtable this week is with Adrian Fernandez Bauman of the Mendo Voice, MendoVoice.com and KMUD Radio's Lauren Schmidt, who are here to discuss the news of 2020 and what we're looking at for 2021. So Adrian, take it away.
1: Um, my expectations for 2020 back um yeah yeah uh i i think i think looking at that well i think in january we were all looking at we were still all very much consumed by the primary and it was uh on the on the democratic side obviously it was a very interesting primary uh, there were a ton of candidates and uh, uh, uh quite a quite a breath of of uh of the ideological spectrum within the Democratic Party. Um, and it, there were moments where it really seemed as though any sort of outcome was was possible. Uh, various uh, unusual outcomes would be possible. Um, a lot of people thought Bernie Sanders had a chance, but there are also moments uh, during the Iowa caucus when um, Pete Buttigieg looked like he was the front runner, which was bizarre, uh, like 35-year-old uh, mayor from Indiana would never hold held a higher office um uh, our senator kamala harris now uh, vice president-elect uh, dropped out very early uh which i think also surprised a lot of people because i think especially in california because we it was sort of assumed that she was such a power powerful politician that she would go far uh and i think that nobody nobody really thought that joe biden joe biden was the consensus establishment candidate obviously but i don't think a lot of people thought that he he sort of had it in him because he was um <laughs> he wasn't campaigning much at the beginning and his, he was, his appearances were weak uh, and he was kind of owned by uh, Kamala Harris at the debate a couple of times. Uh, and so uh, I think, I think, I think we all thought it was going to be at least in the, the through the spring and into the fall, it was, or through the spring, it was going to be a, a a news, you know, a news cycles, news year dominated by the election and of course the election here locally because we had um, um a full field in the in the first district and we had a full field in the second district the that the first being um uh, redwood valley potter valley that area and the second being ukiah
0: yeah we were um, gonna we were set to have a full turnover on the board of supervisors um with the first district and second district supervisors retiring
1: yeah and and we had uh and we actually had a somewhat competitive election over on the coast. So we had that going Oh yeah, um,
0: that's right. The 4th yeah. district <laughs> Dan Jurdy yeah. was reelected in the, during the yeah. primary. Ay ay ay, that happened.
1: He, he that was kind of a blowout so I think <laughs> he'd forgotten. Um and of course we were looking forward to, to city council elections in Willits, Fort Bragg and Ukiah. Now, once the pandemic materialized, uh Ukiah Fort Bragg actually canceled their election. And Ukiah and Willits just went through the motions of having an election because they had a measure that needed to be passed, but no one stood for city council beyond the incumbents. Uh, and so, and um, the the electioneering was obviously quite muted Um Right. Pandemic, right. So.
0: Just like everything, uh, yeah. the election campaigns were changed utterly by a shelter in place. Lauren, what about you? What was on your mind coming into 2020? I know um, one of the stories that I just found f- amazing from Humboldt was the return of the island to the Wiat tribe. Um, I think that had just happened, uh, for, in Humboldt Bay. Um, and, and what else were, were you looking at?
2: Definitely. You know, actually, uh, this time last year, uh, the last time I was on Byline Mendocino, uh, that was kind of the highlight of the year, the Wiat tribe having Tuluat return without having to pay millions of dollars to to some private entity, like we are seeing with other, you know, companies and and tribes uh, around our country. Um, So that was a very monumental move. Um, Also, on that note, something that was really big this year, actually, the Bear River uh, Rancheria um, kind of associated with the Weyot tribe, um, but fall under a rancheria under that act of Congress, held their first salmon ceremony since 1902, out um, the mouth of the Matole. Um, they actually invited me as the sole member of the media to document it, and it was absolutely life-changing. And they're hoping to continue to do that um, every year now, and without coronavirus invite, you know, any member of the public. They're, they're very welcoming and amazing people. Um, like Adrian was saying, definitely, you know, thinking of elections were definitely at the forefront um, of my mind and all of our reporters' mind. Um, you know, the national election, of course, but then focusing on the Humboldt County election, we had three Supervisorial Districts. Um, you know, all incumbents were were up to re-election. Um, two out of three were re-elected, and actually Supervisor Estelle Fennell in our second district um, lost to um a new uh new uh face for the stu- supervisor michelle bushnell and at, you know at first it was very close um at the be- the end of uh, election night incumbent to Fennell fennel was in the lead and then as more votes started to come in and-, and become counted uh she lost her lead to to candidate bushnell and uh michelle actually supervisor bushnell uh
0: Sad. Nope. Uh, yep, we're having a little bit of te- we had a little bit of technical difficulty. We we're going to be focusing on elections and you know, yes. Yeah. Just- okay, is that a little better? Yeah. No, we just had a little. You, know, we all- <laughs> you froze up for just a second, so we didn't catch uh, what happened with Supervisor Bushnell. Did you say she had just sat in her first meeting? Correct. Yeah, okay. This-
2: This week was uh, her first official meeting as second district supervisor. And, of course, we definitely thought elections were going to be the primary focus of this year. Um, Humboldt County actually had one of the first confirmed coronavirus cases um, in California, if not the country. Uh, We identified two positive cases um, in February of 2020, which was, you know, before March, the big month where kind of everything stood still. And even then, even having our first, you know, one of the first cases in Humboldt County, I don't think any of us expected, you know, how everything would unfold and how big this actually would become. You know, it was pretty naive. And now, you know, at first, every day in the news was coronavirus information, coronavirus information for months. And, you know, that's, we're all just kind of making it up as we go. You know, I think what we're hearing from the community is everyone thought it was a well-greased machine and then kind of learning how one pandemic and other things, you know, civil unrest, how how everyone's kind of just making up as we go, not just us as individuals, but government and, you know, even
0: our media team trying to trying to sort through all these facts. Right. Figuring it out as we go. Well, and that's been really one of the hallmarks of this pandemic is that, you know, when the first shelter in place Was uh, put in place in March, I think it was the 17th. Uh, It was temporary. It was, what, a week? Two weeks? Um, It was short. And that's sort of been how it's gone is we haven't ever really wrapped our heads around from the the start how long this was going to go on. We always kind of tripped toward the next deadline, which seemed pretty close. So if we can just shelter for a couple of weeks, we'll be fine. We'll have schools back open by April. Oh, what? Schools aren't going to open for the rest of the semester oh they're not even going to open in the fall you know it's like we're just kind of stumbling forward on this thing um which i think has repeatedly built false expectations uh and and worn us out honestly um I don't think there was anything that could be done about that. I think that, that you know we we really it is the novel coronavirus update, and we've never uh, faced anything like this for a hundred years. Certainly not with the sort of communications and media and healthcare technologies that we face now. Um, so yeah, so it's been uh, it's been awkward. <laughs> And there's been a real learning curve as we go. Um, and it has changed not only what we've covered, uh, from what we thought we would be covering in 2020, but how we were able to, um, because of course we're not able to go and be in person to cover these things. So I'd, I'd love if we could just reflect for a couple of minutes on what this process has been like as you've learned um and the the learning curve with pandemic coverage and um what what have your priorities have been what are some of the misunderstandings we had early on that that we had to adjust to and and kind of wrap our heads around and um yeah what do you guys think about how you've learned to cover the pandemic adrian you're on mute that's the other thing we're all using zoom we're all used to yeah so we're all telling each other we're on mute
1: i got to give a shout out to um uh kate maxwell publisher of the mendocino voice for not being surprised by any of this (laughs) it pays to be a cynic (laughs) she uh she was reading something in december or early january and she looked at me and she said i want you to remember that i'm the person that said this was going to be terrible in january and we should order ed 95 masks right now. And I was like, I, I don't know what you're talking about here. Sure, do whatever you want. But uh, no, she was she, <laughs> she was absolutely right. So I, I yeah, I have to I have to give her credit for that. Um, um and, I, and I agree with you that that um, that one of the one of the one of the pitfalls of the pandemics of the uh, I think the societal response to the pandemic in North America has been um a failure to grapple with just how extensive um both both comprehensive and long the the pandemic would be how how far reaching it would be in terms of our society economy mental health um
0: education
1: structures yeah, yeah education and and uh but also just just how long it would go on and i think i think uh one of the things one of the things that 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 uh, has really struck me as sort of the uh, lack of, of basic science, uh, science and math literacy, um, including like in the, in among journalists ourselves, like, you know, I had to go back to the books and refresh my biology and statistics and stuff um, in order to cover this. And I, I, don't, I don't know that I'm actually doing the, that, I, that I've managed to bring myself back up to speed. Uh, to do the best job i think i'm doing an okay job but um trying to explain exponential growth and what that means you know trying to explain like what it means to flatten a curve and um and like take you know taking the integral of the curve so that you know how much is underneath the curve and uh it's it's something that that i think we've all struggled with explaining it and i honestly think that um, one of my great frustrations from a purely purely from the standpoint of covering these things not as a member of society, but as an observer of society, I am continually I'll just go ahead and vent this frustration right now and burn whatever bridges. I'm continually frustrated by how bad scientists are at communicating with the public. Um, I think it's one of the like one of the weakest points in in so many issues in our society is that scientists are sort of trained to, to be bad at at, uh, communicating with the public they're trained to not uh, not you know not be able to put things in common terms uh, because they're worried about sacrificing some kind of precision and the result is that you need you need us to translate what the scientists are saying often but uh, we we don't know and, you know, th- there's a, there, another big story I'm sure you'll get to in a moment is, of course, the August Complex fire, yes. which, which burned w- well over a million acres, and the the, the increasing severity of, of global warming, climate change, and how that's affecting us here locally with these horrible fires. And in in, in that, I'm really appreciative of a guy named Daniel Swain, who is a climatologist uh-huh. and um, and meteorologist out of UCLA, although he's currently in, in Colorado, uh, who is... Um, and there's another climatologist at UC Santa Barbara named Leah Stokes. And I think those two are, are sort of like the two climatologists, at least on the, the West coast that are able to speak to the press and able to communicate directly to the public complex ideas and seeing the contrast between them. And then going to even, even doctors whose job is to like tell their patients what's going on and being like, can you explain how a virus works? Can you explain what a spike protein is? you know can you explain exponential growth right and like why we need to what 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 flatten the curve means because everybody heard the phrase flatten the curve over and over again but i i really think that if you did a poll of people and asked them to explain what flatten the curve mean a lot of people wouldn't be able to explain it accurately and so i think that as a as an institution of journalism but all but and i i really really have been extremely frustrated with scientists for a long time about this um science like we, we reached a point in our society where we have the technology and the understanding to deal with certain issues much more directly, but scientists have sort of turned themselves into this like monastic order of people who are separate from society um, and, and don't do a good job of communicating.
0: And it's hard to figure out the the language. We don't even understand the words that were that they that they use. Um that's one thing at, at KZYX we've been incredibly fortunate uh since the very beginning of the pandemic, since the first shelter in place, to have a local doctor who is an extremely good communicator and follows uh the the national, local and global news. Dr. Drew Colfax has come on and that's been a huge thing for me as a journalist and for the station is that we've been running these regular corona updates that involve, that allow people to call in and ask their questions as well. And I just think for our community, um, or at least the feedback that I get from our listeners is that this has really been valuable to have somebody who is a good communicator who can sort of decipher it as a regular feature of our coverage. So, um, and Lauren, up at, at KMUD, what are your observations about this, the learning curve and maybe some milestones through the pandemic? And let me just mention this is Byline Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales. It's our local media roundtable. Uh, and we are talking with Lauren Schmidt of KMUD News and Adrian Fernandez Bauman of the Mendocino Voice, mendovoice.com. Thank you
2: so much. Yeah, I couldn't agree with Adrian anymore because, um, trying to get the information, it's almost a whole new language. Uh, community members, press, um, are having to learn with this pandemic. And so definitely our news team, our goal has been trying to take that information and make it digestible for the listeners where they can actually understand it. Because like Adrian's saying, you can hear these things constantly over and over again. But what do they actually mean? You know, I felt that way also with fire you know, when you talk about, oh, the fuels, you know, you can say certain things, but not everyone's going to understand or be on that same page. So definitely always making sure to take the time to to explain everything. And I want to out to all of the officials in Mendocino County. Um, both uh, um, as well as Carmel Angelo and Sheriff Kendall. Um, Anytime our news team has reached out uh, to get information for the public, um, because KMUD very much covers Mendocino County, Trinity County, and Humboldt County, and at times Del Norte County, um, and trying to get access to public health officials in four different counties, I have to say Mendocino gets the the A++ um, for being available, so I definitely want to thank Um, you know, everyone in Mendocino County that has helped to get that um, important information out in a very timely manner, you know, for in Humboldt County, um, I think there's probably a few more different media organizations. So with the, you know, pandemic, so many people were reaching out to our public health department and it kind of got overloaded. So they've kind of established what we now call the media availability, you know, a few times. Lauren, you know, actually, um, YouTube video, um, with the answers where it took that different
0: we're having some, um, glitches with your connection. Do you want to try calling in? Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, we'll see if we can get Lauren's, uh, connection to be more solid. So she's not breaking up and coming in and out, but, um, she makes a great point about, uh, one of the opportunities for local journalists is that because of the pandemic, uh, across the board, we are, uh experiencing more access at least adrian i don't know if this is true for you but for us at kzyx just more consistent access to local officials there's much more uh, effort on their part to to come on the air and to let themselves um you know open up the phone lines and take questions from listeners and just you know consistently through many departments in the hospital uh, to a certain extent as well we're just uh really have built and strengthened our communication with local officials
1: yeah i i would i can i mean i haven't i haven't had the the honor of trying to communicate as much with Humboldt county officials or sonoma county officials but i i would definitely say that i i've reviewed other, other. um sort of county websites and stuff and mendocino county has done a pretty good job of um you know i think notably better job than other counties of providing information especially like um, you know, there was some grumbling among the press here in the early days about the insufficiency of the dashboard, the daily the daily uh, JPEG graphic that gets published with all the, the recent statistics about COVID. But if you actually go to other county websites, um, you know, from from L.A. to uh, Fresno, um, you, you'll you see uh, far less information. So I do want to commend the county for for doing a um for making the effort, I mean, I, you know, it, it's a consistent effort that's required. They need to have somebody dedicated to doing that kind of work and uh, putting together the statistics. And I do commend them for doing that and making it not just available to the press, but available to the general public.
0: It's something that I hope that we benefit from in the future as well, that these relationships and the experience that the county has, um, you know, and the, the trust that's been built. I think there has been some, some trust that we're not going to burn them repeatedly if they, you know, come out and talk to the public. Um, that I, I, hope that that's something that we bring into the future as, as, as we get through the pandemic and, and start to tackle other uh, issues locally. Um, let's, Turn now to the August complex fire. Uh, we're looking back at the big stories in, uh, in our region in 2020 and both of you, um, both have a lot of experience covering fires in our area, but also really, uh, went above and beyond and innovated in many ways. Um, I, Lauren, I know that Garberville was under evacuation warning and, and that's not something that Garberville is used to. So there was, you know, a, a lot of Humboldt was under evacuation warning and, uh of uh the whole half of our county was under evacuation order uh, warning much of it under evacuation order we had a big fire in Willits as well that evacuated all of Brook Trails can you guys talk about um this fire season and uh maybe some of the 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 lessons learned or how it might have been different or we had obviously the biggest fire that's ever been seen in California um and Lauren let's let's start with you
2: Yes, and it's definitely the biggest fire we've seen in modern history. Um, However, speaking with some members of our uh, local prescribed fire association, it's actually believed that our landscape has seen fires of this size, just not severity. Um, And that speaks to, to many different things. What I found most interesting about the August complex is that although it started in August, the real problem for the lack of a better term, flared up in October. And it was interesting. You know, we had the lightning storm that came that started, I believe it was 17 um, different fires, you know, within the National Forest, especially within Mendocino National Forest. And, you know, when it first happened, uh, speaking with the Mendocino National Forest, everyone was thinking that this was a good thing. You know, we understand fire needs to be a part of our landscape. Um, It's just a little more Complicated than that. Um, The Mendocino National Forest, the National Forest in general, um, uses kind of that managing model instead of a suppression model um, like Cal FIRE. So, with that, I think the Mendocino National Forest was, you know, they didn't put the fire was being managed to to help with the forest. However, um, due to certain things that we're definitely investigating, um, along with a couple red flag warnings, um, things just got out of control and it wasn't, you know, interviewing from what happened in August to October, you know, interviewing officials with the Mendocino national force, everyone was like, Oh, this is great. It's acting like a prescribed fire to then, Oh my goodness, this is out of control. We need help. Uh, And that was definitely, you know, it's interesting. There's, I think there's a lot more to this story and myself and some other reporters, Um, are actually looking into some some other different things. Um, I know some people are concerned that there could be monetary gain from the August complex because of salvage logging. Um, A group in our area, the EPIC Environmental Protection Information Center, has actually been in litigations with the Mendocino National Forest over salvage logging. And, you know, some speculate that management um, of the August complex could be a part of that and um you know this nepa lawsuit that that we're seeing and i don't know if that's on your radar uh, adrian and uh you know definitely want to hear uh how the mendo Voice covered the august complex
1: um thank you um yeah we are we're more accustomed to being under evacuation warning uh over here in mendocino county and willits um the, the the I want I, I do want to t- I want to back talk a little bit about um, the the escalation of the fires between the between the of course back in um, back in twenty eighteen we had the ranch and the river fire which were collectively called the Mendocino complex and the the ranch fire at the time grew to be the largest fire in recorded California history at four hundred fifty thousand acres or so and it burned the entirety of the southern southern portion of the of the Mendocino National Forest and we saw that and I remember speaking to some fire experts at the time and they were saying well it's a good thing that's a you know it's not a good thing but it's you know at least there's not going to be another fire there that we'll have to deal with um, for 20 years uh, substantial fire of course 2 years later the august complex burns the entire northern portion of the Mendocino com- of the Mendocino National Forest and into the uh, Shasta National Forest and and Trinity and um, now they didn't—they didn't overlap those two fires. The burn scar of the Mendocino Complex really did stop the fire from from burning farther into southern the southern portion, where it would have uh, exposed Lake County and parts of Mendocino County to a lot more danger. And that was one of the unique things about the August Complex, at least from our perspective down here in Mendocino County, is we've had much smaller fires that, of course, have been much more deadly and much more devastating in terms of property loss and the august complex uh only burned down a handful i mean I say only burned down it's a tragedy when houses burn down but we've unfortunately gotten accustomed to talking in these terms um but it burned down a handful of houses sort of deep in the ha- the forest and, and hunting shacks and so on um and so for for us it was it was it was scary when it reached over and it was approaching Garberville and Leggett and Piercy. But for a long time, and, it, and I think the people in covelo were always sort of living on edge. They're always living on edge these days because there's just so many fires up there uh, about what if the fire would come down in, into the valley. But, um, you know, for, for whatever the two months that it was burning, it was this weird phenomenon. Just the worst thing was the air. And um, one of the things that we discovered is that uh, the, the measurement tools we have to, to figure out exactly how, how much the density of that uh, 2.5 micron particulates that are really damaging to your lungs um, are not are not that accurate and they're not well distributed. And um, there were times when we had sort of anecdotal readings that maybe the, the particulate count had shot up to 600. I think that's 600 parts per million. Um, which is devastating which is the worst on earth which is which is p- potentially giving people substantial if not permanent damage to their lungs especially children um and that lasted for weeks and that was that was the really the really difficult thing i think in mendocino county was the fire the fire was stayed relatively i mean it, it, i think it came within seven miles of my house but that's a uh, seven miles as the crow flies you know um but the the the, there were days when it was as dark as night from the smoke, and there were days when um, in Willits and in Ukiah and Laytonville, and of course in Kovlo. Uh, and, and there were weeks where it was toxic to go outside and breathe. And everybody was, you know, you went to the hardware store and everybody was buying those furnace filters to try to cobble together a, a box fan filter.
0: We were already all wearing masks because of the pandemic yeah. uh but not not smoke masks not the N95. We need a different kind of mask. Yeah, right? exactly. We got to put masks over masks in order to filter out all of the dangers in the air. Um Lauren you up at KMOD you really uh answered the call. You uh got a lot of uh compliments on the reporting that you were doing of keeping Humboldt, Southern Humboldt, Northern Mendocino notified about this it's sort of like the tide of evacuation warnings it would move in and then it would move back out and then it w- you know it would move in again and um uh and could you talk a little bit about how you did that reporting what your response was?
2: Yes. Uh, and definitely a big shout out to all the volunteers and members of our news team, firefighters, uh, officials. You, we were doing live updates every hour on the hour, pulling 12 hour shifts, you know, every hour trying to bring information for Trinity residents, Mendocino residents, Humboldt residents, and, you know, just constantly getting information out. And if there was breaking news, of course we'd break in, in that moment. Um, a lot of information has definitely, um, you know, the hardest part was getting accurate information to disseminate. And definitely the Forest Service, um, the Alaska Incident Management Team, they were amazing, you know, releasing updates as well every hour, <clears throat> you know, putting those those videos out there, um, speaking with Sheriff Kendall, you know, l- letting everyone know what's going on in mine, speaking with Sheriff Hansel, you know, letting folks know what's in Humboldt, and Sheriff Saxon in Trinity County. Um, interestingly enough, you know uh, there were evacuation orders and warnings in Humboldt County. The fire never made its way in uh, to Humboldt County officially. Um, it made it to Keckawaka Creek, which is right kind of at that Trinity Humboldt line. And definitely, I feel like Trinity folks definitely um, got some of the worst of it, especially in the Ruth area, and especially being so rural you know, K-Mud had been a lifeline for many people. And then not to mention our Latinx community who also needs this information. And, you know, another shout out to uh, Brenda Perez from Centro del Pueblo, um, you know, literally sending our fire scripts to her and then translating them in Spanish to make sure all of our community members understand what's going on. And I think the two major snafus that we saw in Humboldt County was confusion over the Eel River. You know, there's the main stem of the EO right. River and then um, multiple different forks. You know, South Forks,
1: the, Middle Stem, North Forks. EO River north, is so and- badly named.
2: <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So, you know, at one point there was kind of hysteria because one of our officials had told our listeners live on the air that the fire had crossed the main stem of the EO River, which is basically what separates, you know, Trinity County from Humboldt County. Um, that unfortunately was incorrect. It was the middle stem, um, that, that the fire did jump. So, you know, and they said that, like I said, live on the air. And then unfortunately a week later, uh, another news agency, uh, you know, reported something the same because of a, uh, river confusion. So that was definitely um, a problem, you know, as a member of the press, trying to bring factual information, you know, fact checking the fact checkers, it's our job. And um, another kind of snafu that unfolded, which was I think really unique, um, having a major fire with, you know, cannabis legalization, um, it's kind of awkward how those two things came together um, after areas of Garberville, um, you know, a few miles east of Garberville through Alder Point Road were placed under evacuation order. If you left which was the mandatory order, you were n- n- unable to return. And the evacuation order lasted for a few days. Again, like I stated, the fire did not jump um, that main stem and, you know, was still a few miles. However, we know that the fire can spot, I mean, I believe um, Cal Fire stated that the August complex spotted 11 miles ahead of the fire line, which is unprecedented. Wow. Absolutely. and. So, of course, there's concern. We don't want that to happen. We don't want people to, you know, be in their homes at night. The fire and a wind picks up and the fire spots and, you know, lives and homes are lost. Right. So with good measure, there was an evacuation order. However, you know, it it was maybe five days into it and people were unable to return to their homes. You know, they left their animals and, uh, you know, their, their crops even. And. The, in a very unique move, our um, planning and building department started issuing day permits for people to go into that evacuation order and deal with their cannabis plants, right? If you can show that you are a licensed cannabis farmer, you can go and, and take care of your, your crop. However, non-cannabis community members were really disheartened and were saying, what about my chickens? What about my dogs? And it it caused a pretty big, big riffle um, against the public and officials, Um, you know, with with a lot of that kind of outcry. A few days later, it got replaced under a warning and folks were able to return, you know, Knowing that it could become an order
0: right. at any moment. All right. Well, uh, we just have a minute left. So I'm going to have to leave it there. But, um, it's a good start looking back. I mean, is it too soon? Is it too soon to look back at 2020 and remember all of the stuff? Uh, it's, it's so fascinating to think about the journey we've come through. Uh, and we're onward now to 2020, which has started off with a bang. So, uh, Adrian Bauman, Mendo voice. Uh, Lauren Schmidt from KMUD, thank you so much for being the roundtable today on Byline Mendocino and I can't wait to talk with you in the new year.
1: Thanks very much for having me.
0: Bye bye. All right. Likewise.
2: Take care. Take care.